Welcome to Biota Chat. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Brian Peltonen, the co-founder of Greythumb, the founder of Living Playsets, and someone who's uh, become part of the ongoing artificial life community discussion in part through his role through Greythumb and also Google videos. Brian, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Well, thanks. Thanks for, for having me on. I just want to say thanks for, for all you've been doing with Biota to, to get the artificial life message out there. Shucks. Well, for people not familiar with your work, can you please give some background to how you got interested in artificial life? Well, I, I think it is a gradual process that dovetailed with my interest in computers. Ever since I was a, a little kid, I've been interested in programming in one form or another. We got a uh, ti 99 back when I was maybe about six years old, something like that, and I, I could barely write, but my older brother was able to, he would automatically go into basic mode if he didn't have a cartridge in there. And so he was able to do things like 10 print, 20 print, John rules, 30, go to 10, and, and make the TV screen fill up with that. And that, that made a really profound impact on me, just kind of having a power over the, the television. And so I, I grew up programming, you know, starting off on that TI and then through the Apple II and then Amiga. And all the while, I, I was interested in, in video games and interested in what in, in pushing the characters a bit deeper. And, you know, I'd play things like Lemmings or SimCity and just wish that, you know, wish that, wish that there could be richer worlds. And then once I, I got into college, I took some simulation courses with a, a great professor, Robert Signorelli, who, um, who used to be at X-Park back in the day. And he really got me into agent-based modeling. And um, they, around that time, I started reading about the work of, of Axtell and Epstein with Sugarscape, and, um, and then a little bit later, the work that Carl Sims and the work coming out of Jordan Pollock's lab, and all of that had a really profound impact on me. So I guess it's a, a long-winded... Uh, <laughs> of how I got into artificial life. Have you had the opportunity to meet Carl Sims? No, no, I, I, I never have. I, ironically enough, the, one of the, the places where we originally met for the Graytham meetings before it was called Graytham is actually a couple doors down from uh, from the, the company he works at now doing the post-production special effects. But we, we found that out just quite randomly. So could you talk a little bit about the kind of just prior to forming Graytham meeting of minds, how, how you kind of got your collective group together and how Graytham came out of that. I, I guess you could say it's a descendant in some ways of the post-mortem, which is the, the Boston area game developers meeting. It's a, a once-a-month meeting where the developers in the area get together to just have drinks, have a speaker come in, and otherwise just socialize. I met Martin Martin there, and each month he and I would meet, kind of squirrel away to a, a quieter place and just discuss artificial life. And at a certain point, we realized, wait, why don't we come to the postmortems to talk with game developers about games and then just meet some other time where we could talk about artificial life. So we started started doing that, you know, just talking about those types of things. And then I guess our, our first meeting was uh, October 25th of 2004. We sent out some emails to people we thought that, that might be interested. And four of us met up at my apartment and Martin presented on his, his thesis work from his PhD at, at Carnegie Mellon. Who were the other participants? One of them, uh, Savant Kasichi, who's now a postdoc in the AI research group over at Harvard, and also Andrew Stern, who I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, game facade, was one of the most impress, impressive uses of a life and natural language, uh, or artificial intelligence rather, through language processing. So you can 
I think you can download it. But he he was the co-creator of that, and he was also the, the lead behavior programmer for the Cats and Dogs video games back in the day, if you remember the, the C-A-T-Z pets with the little A-Life Sims where you can have a little pet that runs around on your desktop. So when did John Klein get involved? I, I'm not sure the exact date of that. I know that Martin and I set up a, a mailing list and contacted a couple other groups in the area, and somewhere between October of 04 and maybe, you, you know, maybe around, I would say, October of the next year, within a year, I'd say that that's when we got the core members as it stands now, I would say, and, and John was, was one of those who, who came in during that time. Were you aware of his work prior to him actually attending the meetings? I, I was, but not through the name. I, I checked it out and it, it had played around with it, but I didn't um, I, I didn't recall that it was called Breve. So, so when I actually did meet him and found out he created Breve, I didn't link it to the actual uh, the actual code base that, that it is, I guess. Was it the Creatures screensaver that you were familiar with? Well, I, I was, no, I, I, I downloaded Breve, but it, it was a while before the night. I just didn't, didn't match up the name. So in terms of just prior to forming Greytham formally, what was the kind of collective group like? The core members, there's um, Adam Yermenko, who he found out, I don't think we ever figured out how he found out about us. He, he Googled and somehow we, um, we popped up and he just came with just a, a huge passion for the, the group and about A-Life. He just moved from Ohio and was like to be in a place like Boston where there's a really robust community and the, that's large enough to support something like Great Thumb. And he just, just came with tons of ideas. Also around that, that time, John Klein came in and came with, you know, not only just the a deep knowledge of the field, but also the, the huge contribution that, that, that he had already made. And um, another person who came in at that time, Chuck Willen, who, who really we have to credit a lot with organizing all of this, where he, um, he, he has a, a solid business background and has been on a lot of different boards and is the CEO of a corporation. And he did, did a lot to make us think of what our goals are for the group and what we wanted it to be like and how we wanted it to grow and really brought that sense to it. And lastly, around the same time, Jason Kelly came into the group and he's over at Drew Endy's lab over at MIT and he came with a, a really solid biological side of knowledge. Those were the, the, the people who came in during that time and, and really took it from being a much more casual group into, into being what it is today, I'd say. Now, this is a kind of two-part question that hinges on a couple of things that you said. In terms of the local labs, I mean, you're, you're very well located for the related colleges and their own particular venting into artificial life, but also in terms of the description that you've given in terms of growth and possible business and startup development, how did that kind of come together in creating Greytham? Can you give some discussion to the vision in terms of so many separate groups that are all working in academia as well as, as you say, a kind of enterprise angle as well. One of the, the key things that, that has influenced us from the start, and I, I was actually su surprised to see this as, as early as I did, but when I was trying to find out the, the date of the October 25th, 2004 meeting, before we had that, Martin actually had an email, a reference to the, the Homebrew Computer Club. And that's been, I think, our, our model, where we've wanted to bring in academics, but not we don't want this to turn into an academic event. So we've, we've gone through great pains, I think, at least strategically, to try to make sure that hobbyists are welcome, that people who are just curious are welcome, that, that people from all kinds of different areas 
areas with backgrounds in biology or, or evolution or computer science or mathematics, that everyone feels welcome and that, that we can really cross-pollinate because it, it's been something that the field, I think, A-Life, is something that has perhaps stagnated a bit lately and I, I think could really use that kind of cross-pollination. So to that effect, we've, we've really tried to be welcoming to people coming at this from all different perspectives. You've talked a little bit about the perceived stagnation and I wanted to also talk a little bit more about the academic groups in the area. First, let's, let's explore this idea of stagnation in terms of academic publication and a few other means of tracking potential stagnation. There doesn't appear to be any real slowdown in the discussions associated with artificial life. Where do you see this stagnation as being? Uh, that's, that's actually a really good point. So maybe I shouldn't say stagnation, but it seems like sometime in the, the mid-90s there was a lot of awareness about artificial life, and it seemed like it was a, a very a very popular thing headed for this very bright future. And since that time, it's really declined from the, the public eye, and I think a, a lot of that has been through overhype. And with that, I think a lot of funding has dried up. So pursuing it at the academic level, I think there's, there's been less activity or less possibilities to get funding for more pure A-life research. But th- that's just what, what my sense is, and I, I should qualify. I'm not kind of tied into the to the, the grant loop at all, but that's just what I would say my how I've perceived it to be. I think you put a recent post on the Great Thumb blog with regards to the evolution of Carl Sims' thought over the past 20 years with regards to various videos and key papers and things of that nature. And my reflection looking at that, particularly because, as I'm sure you do, when you encounter people in the general public or even worse, the slightly educated public that have some understanding of artificial life, the cliché tends to be, isn't that just? And then fill in the blanks, be it genetic algorithms, be it Carl Sims' walkers. And what interests me in terms of contemporary artificial life is that there is a great degree of diversity. Some of it is just fledgling diversity, but others are actually kind of moving the discourse in directions where the discourse hasn't been previously, particularly in the social sciences, elements of psychology, swarm intelligence, these kind of things that come out of artificial life. So I guess my question back to you is really, how do we as kind of meta-motivators, we're not even talking here as artificial life developers, but we're talking here as people that are active participants in moving communities, how do we assist that discourse in a greater degree to move artificial life into something that has a proper continuation as opposed to in some degree a stifled continuation? with evolution, play with emergence, and 
gain a real understanding of these things on an intuitive level. And if that happens young enough, I would imagine that that generation, if, if they grew up with those sort of systems, would see amazing potentials. So all of my focus in terms of my, my theoretical focus, maybe I could say, has been on getting kids to really play with these systems. And I haven't done too much in the way of thinking of getting the wider adult public, I guess I could say, thinking about that stuff. Perhaps that's a little bit disingenuous because we, we have talked about possible PR moves for a life and for, for Grey Thumb and getting it out to the, the wider media. But I would say if, if I'm thinking about getting the, the message of, of a life out, the primary target that I'd hope to reach, at least at some point eventually, is definitely children. Obviously, Biotis Bruce Damer was at the last Grayther meeting, and from his initial photos, the thing that struck me, and I, I have a similar view, but I think the critical age group for me, because it was when I became really passionately interested in artificial life, was from probably about 15 through to about 21. And I know by holding Greytham in a in a pub, you kind of eliminate that age group. Have you thought about doing a, an all-ages Greytham event? Well, that's actually a really good, good question. And the, the place where we, we meet, it is a bar kind of slash restaurant, and we meet in the back room. So you don't have to be 21 to be there. So there is one guy who comes pretty regularly who's, who's right around 15. We've talked a little bit about the venue, and part of the, the reason why we've, we've kept it at a place that I guess could accurately be described as a pub is just to keep it really informal and try to encourage discourse among people. But that's a, it's an interesting thing that the, the group should talk about, about whether or not we're alienating the people we should, should really be trying to reach. I mean, certainly my discussion with Bruce particularly is... is he's looking to set up a, a Grey Thumb chapter in Silicon Valley, is that there are a number of coffee shops and bookshops, and I know Bruce has had connections with bookshops with regards to some of the stuff he's done with NASA and various other connections. He obviously has the Digibarn as well, so he has spaces in museums and other things in the Bay Area that he could use. But my own thinking, uh, particularly through the feedback that I get with Noble 8, and really some of them have come as young as kind of 12 or 13 year olds, but that kind of age group, as you say, although I think you're actually probably talking about even younger in your discussion. This kind of age group, there needs to be some way to get them actively involved with existing artificial life simulations and also thinking about developing their own at that kind of age group. You've opened up the, the topic of discussion, so I'd like to talk a little bit more about Living Playsets, which is the company that you founded. My assumption is that this is ultimately for this group that you're talking about, the kind of children getting interested in artificial life. Can you talk a little bit about Living Playsets? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and and you, you're exactly right. So my, my background has been alternatively in the games industry and also in the simulation space. And so I left the simulation world. I was working at a company called Ecosystem that's founded by Eric Bonobo. I left that about seven months ago to start living playsets. And we're still very small. It's primarily me with a couple other people helping out. And the idea is just that, is to, to reach younger people with these concepts and to, to present them in, in fun sorts of ways so that kids can play with swarm intelligence, understand how these systems work, play with them, devise their own experiments, evolve creatures, and that type of stuff. And our first project is a descendant, I'd say, of the Carl Sims type virtual creatures where kids can design their own cute little 3D physically simulated creatures, design their own little obstacle courses for them, and have the creatures evolve. So would you think of living play sets as being an artificial life startup fundamentally? Yeah, absolutely. The mission statement, if 
if you will, is sharing the joys of artificial life beyond the, the research community. I remember a Greytham blog post probably three or four months ago that linked through to a BBC children's television show where they built their creatures and they had battles and races and these kind of things. In terms of what you're looking to do with living playsets, is that similar? Yeah, it, it, it's very, very similar to, to Banzuki. I was very surprised to, to find that. I, I thought I had a, a decent bit of knowledge about the field, I guess you could say, and I had been, been working on this for a few months and then found that where, you know, many, many of the same principles they did and, and were successful with and, and got three seasons of a show, millions of downloads for the toolkit. I can't remember exactly the number of uploads of creatures, but pretty successful show. And each of the seasons was rebroadcast a bunch of times, and yet it didn't really break too far out of the UK in terms of the popular media. But yeah, it was very, very inspiring to find out that other people had already worked along those efforts and had, had achieved some success in that, that territory. If I recall correctly, they were part of Steve Grand's early creatures development group a lot of the people that worked on that had come from that stable for want of a better term in terms of this linking certainly when i was in the uk there were half a dozen television shows similar to that that i tracked and as you say had maybe two or three seasons at most but the intellectual property tended to come from traditional game development in terms of creating stuff with living play sets do you see part of that as being a, an SDK-like development that could go on into traditional game development? Or do you see it more in terms of user interface and user experience, which ultimately could not be replicated into traditional game development? Well, it, it's something I've been, been thinking of, and the, the software is designed uh, very, very flexibly and, and behind. It's even, even internally, the code for ourselves is, is split into a couple of different APIs. So thinking about it pretty flexibly in terms of potentially becoming an SDK, but, but right now the primary focus is on the closed commercial products. But that's still, you know, I, I think the idea is if there's success there, then, and, and there's enough of a community that's interested, then really opening it up and, and giving all kinds of tools. But before there's an actual audience, in terms of just the focus on development, I think it's too tough to, to try to do both at the same time, you know, come up with robust tool sets and that, that kind of stuff, as well as the, the product. So in terms of age group, what specific age group are you looking to reach with living play sets? Eight to 14. That's the primary focus. But then there's also the, the, the kind of make magazine demographic of weekend tinkerers and, and people interested in technology and that kind of stuff, but primarily focused at 8 to 14. So in terms of what you were discussing with regards to kind of historical surveying of the space, who or what companies were your inspiration for, for living play sets? That's I would say that Will Wright's conception of software toys instead of video games has, uh, has had a very profound effect on me. We're releasing things that you, know, you, you don't have a score you're trying to get or some other explicit goal, but it's more about you just get a, a sandbox with which you can plan. If you, if you want to come up with your own goals, you can do that, but it, it's a very open-ended kind of world. I think that that has had a very profound effect on me. Also, uh, another company that, that has really influenced me, and um, I've, I've gotten some guidance from a couple of people at, at the company, but is Harmonix, the former makers of Guitar Hero and Rock Band. And what a, a lot of people don't know about the company is that they, they're an MIT Media Lab spinoff, and their mission statement was just sharing the joys of creating music with non-musicians. 
and they, they've really held true to that principle through some, some ugly times and are now finally rewarded. But they, they didn't start off as a, as a game company. They created a, uh, and they didn't think of themselves as a game company. They, they created a joystick with which you could create music and tried all kinds of other routes to get people to experience the, the joy of, of creating music with friends, but without actually going through the intense training and frustration that it takes to actually learn how to play an instrument. And I think that they have really been an inspiration to me, just in terms of keeping true to that core principle and trying to, to share something that's been in a lot of ways locked off from a big chunk of the population. Certainly it's an interesting description of learning to play an instrument, because I think the, the same is analogous with artificial life development, that you need to go through a lot of frustration initially in order to have the, the wonder of jamming your simulation as one may jam a piano <laughs> yeah, or something like absolutely. that. absolutely. I think we've all experienced that period before the jamming starts. So is this really what you're trying to create? You're trying to create something analogous to the harmonics experience with regards to the Guitar Hero games and these kind of things with regards to artificial life development? Yeah, the main thing that, that I'm interested in is getting people to get excited about and play with concepts that come from nonlinear systems. So seeing how you can change different parameters and get swarms to act differently, seeing how just fundamentally grasping how something like natural selection can work through multiple generations and really seeing for themselves that you don't have to have some sort of guided framework that these things can emerge from local rules. Now, moving back to Will Wright, have you had any primary contact with Will Wright? I met him a couple of years ago and had a brief chat primarily about ant simulations. I haven't followed up since. I've talked to and, and know, know some people on some of the teams at, at Maxis, but that, that's been my, you know, just, just that, that one conversation was the extent of my contact with him. What was your sense of his background understanding with regards to artificial life? We didn't talk about it you know, it's more about ants, and he, and he certainly had a good grasp of that. But we didn't, you know, didn't talk about the wider area of research. I know I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about spore, but I'm a bit bummed that that there actually isn't going to be any evolution done on the computer side. That it's just kind of, I forget how he called it, but he said that instead of an evolution game, it's more of a intelligent design game. And so that, uh, I mean, I don't don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm dying to buy the game. You know, when stores open up on September 7th, I'll be the first in line. But I. I I, I was really, just as an A-Life fan, really hoping we'd get to, to push some evolution on the computational side. I'm not sure if you've heard me talk previously with regards to Spore, but I certainly think it would be a great opportunity for Greytham as a collective group to hold an event for the Spore launch and use the launch of Spore as a means of getting the local Boston media talking about what Greytham is doing. Yeah, I think, I think that's an absolutely great idea. I mean, I think it's a, a fascinating opportunity, as John Klein was able to do with his Probase screensaver, as a means of getting the, the broader public interested in this rich soup of information and ideas that is kind of contemporary artificial life. If we can return to Grey Thumb, obviously now we're moving into a Grey Thumb of many smaller chapters. What's your thinking with regards to that move? Well, it, it's very exciting. We talked initially just in our, our humble beginnings when it was, you know, five or six of us just sitting around a, a, a table at a, a place called The Cellar in Cambridge just kind of dreaming about, could you imagine if, if we end up getting great thumb chapters all around the world and greeted it with a with a chuckle, but also with a twinkle in our eye that, that maybe that's something that could happen. So it's been very exciting to, to see it happen, happen this fast. There's a bit of infrastructure that we need to implement to just 
making sure that all, all of this goes smoothly and, and different protocols to whatever extent that we have to think about if they're necessary. So there's, there's a bit of a, I don't know what, what the term is, but we're just, we're, we're excited, but also, I don't want to say have gotten a bit in over our heads, but just things things happen a lot faster than, than we thought they would. So Growing pains may be used. With yeah, yeah, I think that that's, that's, that's a good term. What's interesting to me, particularly with regards to Justin Lyons, Greytham London and the potential for Greytham Silicon Valley is when I picked up the editorial duties with regards to Biota, I went through the Biota mailing list and found that there were pockets of maybe 20 or 30 email addresses in various locations, which made me think that what you're saying currently with regards to Grey Thumb chapters was really a, a high possibility in terms of local communities getting together. In terms of, I mean, local communities getting together with a kind of hungry local base, local interest seems to be pretty well a no-brainer, particularly university cities with multiple universities and research areas and things like that. But in terms of managing the infrastructure in terms in terms of the integratum communications, in terms of there being a progressive hierarchy, I know the decision was made very early on not to take membership dues or anything like that. What's your general thinking in terms of, you know, the possibility of there being six or seven active Greytham chapters and how these groups will kind of intercommunicate? Well, that, that, that's one of the things that, that we're, we're brainstorming on it and really trying to get, get some feedback from the community about what the, the structures will be like. You know, what, what, what does it mean? to be a great thumb group. Obviously, there, there's some territories that we, we wouldn't want chapters to go in, but also we're, we're trying to come up with, with a more positive way of saying it. What are the things that, that we want the group to reflect? So as, as an example of territory we don't want to go in, we, we want to make sure that the speakers either have have some sort of either scientific credibility to what they're doing or some kind of artistic aspect of what they're doing, but we don't want to make this a forum for debates between intelligent designers and people who back evolutionary theory or things like that. So we're trying to come up with what sort of guidelines do we have for presentations and, and that sort of stuff. But right now it's all a work in progress and it's been sort of difficult to coordinate everybody's schedule to, to meet to discuss these things and to figure out what's the relationship going to be between these chapters and how will information flow and, and all those kinds of things. So it's really, really a, a budding work in progress, I'd say. In terms of the kind of discourse you've described, I think probably five formal meetings in, you had Brig Kleiss come and talk. Is what you're saying currently a reflection of Brig Kleiss's talk specifically? Can you talk a little bit about Brig's talk at Grey Thumb and the kind of feedback that you received from that talk? Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the, uh, but you just, first off, I wouldn't say that this decision comes specifically from that by any stretch, but I think that that was, you know, overall that, that was a, a presentation that brought up some interesting issues about, you know, just the, the whole idea of open-ended evolution or open-ended complexity. But that's probably not where we want to go in terms of, of our meetings month after month. Another thing that comes through with regards to Grey Thumb is the fact that you have a, quite a formal structure in terms of speakers. And the feedback that I got from Bruce was that he had a lot more fun in kind of small get-together jamming session that I think occurred a couple of days after the formal Greytham meeting. Are you thinking about maybe doing a, a mid-month meeting just to, to get together and have a, a jamming session? We've talked a lot about that. We, we had one of those meetings, but uh, attendance was, was pretty poor at it. But we've we talked a lot about that. We've also talked about, for a long time, but before we even formalized the Greytham and the monthly meetings, we've talked about running a ski cabin off-season and just having everybody bring up their computers and having a three-day weekend coding session. So we've definitely talked a lot about those things. And one of the big goals that we've talked about for 
having collaborations come up with people working on other people's projects and people starting new projects. And there's been some amount of that, but I think that that's something that would, would really like to push and encourage. So it's, it's something that we've been talking about since the absolute very beginning, but we've been slower on the actual implementation side, with the exception of that one meeting, which didn't have the, the, the greatest turnout. So in terms of collaboration, one thing that we haven't really touched on, but I've touched on previously when I've talked to John Klein, is the diversity of people in terms of their backgrounds, their interests that actually come to the Grafer meetings. Do you survey this at all, and do you have a kind of broader sense of how many different kinds of discipline folk and, you know, academics and the diversity of interests and skill sets that actually attend the Grafer meetings on a regular basis? We don't have any, any formal demographics on it. formality, if a new person turns up at a grey fund by themselves, are they going to be identified and, and welcomed by part of the core, or are they going to be moved into the community, or is it really dependent on their own social abilities and interests, how they will be integrated into the grey fund meetings? I would say, you know, we, we, we try to try to say hi to people as they come in, and, and uh, some meetings we have name tags and that kind of stuff, but sometimes we don't. Most of the time we don't, probably 70% of the time we don't have the name tags, but is pretty, it's hard to get a seat by yourself. So chances are you're going to be seated with people at a table with people all around you. And part of the, the reason why we we like this structure is if you were to go someplace where you're seated in rows, it's very easy to, to just kind of, of be a, a wallflower and not talk to other people. But when you're actually sitting at a table with a group of people, it, it tends to foster discussion. So to that extent, people are, are integrated in and most of us who organize the meeting stay to the very end. If people do want to talk and find out more about the group and, and that kind of stuff, we're always available to discuss things with them. So in terms of the presentations, I've been an avid watcher of the Google video clips of the presentations, and the sense I get from watching them is that the meter of the speakers, for want of a better term, can be quite divergent. Some of the speakers are kind of more formal academic presentations, and some of the speakers are more friendly in nature. What is your general feeling about the ideal speaker? If someone who's listening to this podcast, who may be going through Boston in you know in the next six months and wants to be a Greytham speaker, what has the kind of feedback that you've received in terms of the kinds of speakers and the, the modes of presentation that have worked best for the group? Well, it's, it's 
surprising. It, it, you know, I think, it, and it speaks to the diversity of the group, that it's, uh, it, it's all over the map. I don't think we have a, a cookie-cutter form for an ideal speaker. I think that sometimes when we have a presentation, lots of people will love it, and other people will think that it was either too technical or, or too dry, or, you know, that it, it wasn't concrete enough or could use more hard science. I mean, the responses are really all over the map, and I think that's good. I think that we, we re- really want to bring in a diversity of speakers. I think the one thing we want to make sure is that, that people understand that meeting with our group isn't like speaking at an academic conference. You know, it's very informal, and as I'm sure you've picked up from the videos, sometimes there's music playing in the background, and you can hear other people placing their, their food orders and that kind of stuff. So it's a very informal group, but I, I don't think we have anything in the, the way of an ideal speaker or ideal subject matter to present on. What would you like to see from the, the broader artificial life community in the next 10 years? I would love to see, obviously, more of, of these or, or similar groups sprouting up. I'd love to see more collaboration. And I I'd really, personally, I, I just, the thing that, that, that I find key is just the, the concept of play is releasing things so that, that people can just play around with systems and making it very easy for somebody who might be willing to do things like click a, a YouTube link or, or something like that. Getting those people the, the ability to just play with systems. I think that's that's what, what my big desires are as opposed to hoping we can get systems that evolve in such and such a way or, or things like that. So how do you think you describe that to maybe the, the 15 to 21 year olds that are coming up currently listening to this podcast and have their own ideas with regards to artificial life development? There, there are a bunch of tools that are making it a lot easier to play around with things. I mean, certainly certainly John Klein's Brevet is, is one of those. Being able to just tinker with these systems where if, if you're not interested in digging around under the hood, that's fine. You know, you can just play it at sort of the top level, and then if you, you really get interested in it, then you can, can start messing around with the code underneath. So I would just say download as many of these different things as you can, play around with them. There's so many different A-life simulations available on the net that you can download and run on your computer and just play with these things and then whatever interest you have you know see if there's any any open source effort in that area and start playing around under the hood do you have any final thoughts for the chat brian no just that i, I think it's a, a very exciting time for a life and I, I you know when we started this group we had no idea how many people in the area would be interested in coming to something like this certainly coming to something like this month after month and we've all been just just absolutely overwhelmed at what the response has been. And I think that that's really made all of us in the group excited about what we think must be out there, you know, through, through the country and around the world of other people who still are very interested in artificial life and, and passionate about it and passionate about it, its future. So it's just now a matter of, of, of trying to, to find all these people and, and getting all of us connected in, in some way so that we can really move this field forward. Many thanks for the chance to chat with you today, Brian. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it.